0: We're coming out of our series in uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, to go back into the Old Testament to the book, little book of Jonah. Jonah will mention, uh, I mean Jesus will mention Jonah in the next section of Matthew that we look to. So I thought it would be uh, beneficial for us to go back and take a look at this uh, little book among the minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament. It's a little hard to find because it's so small. Uh, But there's a lot packed into uh, this book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is set historically in the time of the divided kingdom. Uh, And by divided kingdom, we mean the time period after the nation of Israel had split. Remember, after Solomon dies, uh, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom, which, which actually is composed of 10 out of the 12 tribes. And that northern kingdom is known as Israel. Southern kingdom gets the name of Judah because the dominant tribe in that southern part of the country is Judah. And the little tribe of Benjamin sort of tags along with them. So the, the nation has been divided. And the prophet Jonah is a native of that northern area, the, uh, the country known then as Israel in contrast to Judah to the south. The book of 2 Kings tells us that Jonah's home was a village called Gath Heifer in the hill country of uh, what came to be known during New Testament times as Galilee. And you'll remember that that's where Jesus grew up. And in fact, Nazareth is only a few miles uh, across the little mountains, the little hills there from uh, Gath hepher where Jonah was from. Uh, so he would have been quite familiar with uh, this account, I'm sure. Second Kings also identifies the time period in which Jonah acted as prophet. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And he, Jeroboam II ruled for about 41 years in Israel. His rule comes toward the end of that kingdom's life. Uh, within less than a half a century after Jeroboam II rules, Israel is going to be conquered and, and utterly destroyed by Assyria. Uh, those ten northern tribes, uh, many, much of the population is taken into exile, and we never hear from them again. Uh, so it's toward the end of the kingdom of Israel, but it is economically and politically uh, a relatively prosperous time for israel second kings chapter 14 uh, tells us of an event that actually uh, jonah prophesied he that is jeroboam restored the border of israel from libo hamath as far as the sea of araba according to the word of the lord the god of israel which he spoke by his servant jonah the son of amittai the prophet who is from gath hefer Jonah prophesied that, that Jeroboam would be able to reclaim land that the kingdom of Israel had lost previously to some of the neighboring countries. And in fact, under Jeroboam's rule, the extent of the kingdom again approaches the, the extent that it had at its beginning, way back after the time of Solomon. So politically and economically, it's good times for Israel. Uh, Sadly, that cannot be said of the spiritual state of Jeroboam and the nation. Here's the assessment of his rule later in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil, wrong, bad. That's going to be a key word in Jonah. Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Jeroboam the I, you remember, established sort of this mixture of state and religion in Israel that in, involved sort of mixing elements of the true faith with elements of the culture. And, and, and the kingdom went downhill from there. And this tells us there's no improvement spiritually during Jonah's time. Either So, Jonah is prophesying during a time of economic and political prosperity, but moral decadence, disregard for God's word. Does that sound familiar? Political and economic prosperity, spiritual poverty, and depravity. And sadly, we're going to see in Jonah himself some of the moral failings of his culture. It's always difficult, isn't it, as believers, as followers of Christ, to resist the pull of culture around us. Uh, He seems more concerned with the material well-being of himself and his country than with their spiritual state. And maybe that's part of the reason why Jesus refers to him when he's speaking to a people who are very anxious for political freedom and economic well-being but not all that interested in his message of repentance. So let's, uh, let's take the uh, first 16 verses of uh, Jonah chapter 1 as our text today then. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, Because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And made vows. Well, the book opens with a typical opening of a prophetic narrative. You see it there in verse one: "The word of the Lord came." Uh, we see this uh, number of other places in Scripture. For instance, 2 Samuel verse 7, I mean, chapter 7, verse 4. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, who was a prophet under David. Uh, it's used in a narrative concerning Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, the word of the Lord came to him. And just a little bit later in the narrative, it, it echoes Jonah even more explicitly, or Jonah echoes it, when the text reads, the word of the Lord came to him, arise. Remember, that's the first word that, that God says to Jonah, Arise. And that reminds us uh, of the role of prophets. In Amos uh, chapter 2, verse 11, God is speaking, I raised up some some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of the Lord, declares the Lord? The prophets were those who were raised up, as it were, by the Lord to speak his word. To to speak on behalf of him. They didn't speak their own word. They spoke the word of the Lord. And with that in mind then. Let me ask you a question. You ready? To whom did the Lord send his prophets? He's got a word. He wants it delivered. Who does he have them deliver it to? His people, right? His people. Jonah is an anomaly here, right? God usually sent his prophets to his people, which would make sense, right? I mean, it's his word. He's giving his word to his people. So right away, we get the sense this is a different kind of book. This is a different kind of prophet, this is a different kind of message, because the Lord is sending his prophet to prophesy to foreign people in a foreign land. Now, the prophets did sometimes speak of, of foreign entities okay, in their messages to God's people. Nahum is going to prophesy concerning Assyria quite a bit later, or, or at least somewhat later than, than Jonah, but Nahum is going to is going to talk about Assyria in his prophecy, but he's giving it to the Israelites. Jonah is being told, go to a foreign people. That's, that's key. That's key. What do we see in this? There are just theological lessons all over the place, but let's just pause to grab one right here. Okay. What do you see in the fact that the God of the Hebrews is sending a message to a foreign people? Well, you see that he rules over them as well. Israel is living in a time where gods were associated with territories. So this people over here has their gods. This people over here has their gods. And the God of the Israelites is different. As Jonah himself testified to the sailors, he is the only God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. See in the dry land. So, right away, we're seeing already a lesson here. God is sovereign over all the nations. So, He will speak to Nineveh just as easily as He will speak to Israel. Now, Nineveh is identified as a great or important city. That's a key word, too great. There's a lot of big stuff in this in this little in this little book as well and and it's big not only because of its size but this is also a statement of its importance from a human and historical viewpoint nineveh is significant quite significant in this period in this uh, period of time and in this location nineveh is the capital of the assyrian empire the Assyrian people worshipped many different gods, some say thousands of different gods. Um, many of those gods were associated with particular locales, okay? So there might be a god associated with this territory or a god associated with this city. One of those, one of those gods was the, was the god Asher. And Asher uh, rose in significance as a city, and so it's God rose in significance, And Asher winds up being sort of the head god, the chief god among the gods for the Assyrian empire. It's easy to remember, right? Asher is the chief god of the Assyrians. Um, Their culture then centers on their religion. And their government is linked to their religion. they're, They're just one. At first, the region was ruled by Babylon, but uh, the Assyrians threw off Babylonian rule, and they began to build their own empire, and they saw this as the extension of the power of their gods. And it would not be uncommon for the Assyrians to approach a city and say something uh, like they will say to uh, the city of Jerusalem later on. Uh, what God has been able to protect their people against us? And they were a ruthless, cruel people. Some say they invented the tactic of terrorism. As they, they didn't just kill people who resisted their advance. They flayed them alive. They dismembered them. And they displayed those atrocities as a form of psychological warfare and intimidation to other people. They they were cruel and feared in their day. And that leads us to the most important thing about Nineveh, of course, which is not its greatness politically or economically, but the greatness of its sin. See that in the Lord's words here? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil is come up before me. There's, there's the image there of their sin coming up before God like smoke arising or a stench arising and coming to your nostrils. So this great city, this greatly sinning city, is to receive The Lord's word of judgment. There's another lesson, isn't there? Right? The sovereign God sees human wickedness. It gets his attention. Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He sees it all. He sees it all, and he discerns their wickedness. So he sends a word of judgment, a judgment they deserve. But we want to note, at the same time, that it is a characteristic of God's judgment, God's words of judgment, I should say, That implicit in the word of judgment is the possibility for forgiveness. Here's the way the Lord identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, using, using the covenant name for Lord there, the one that's all capitals in your Bibles probably, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, perhaps to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And a little bit later on in that same chapter, Ezekiel 33, he's speaking to the prophet, Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Jonah knows that. Jonah knows that to sort of get ahead of ourselves. In chapter 4 of Jonah, he's going to say, I knew that you, the Lord that is, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were this kind of God. That's what he's saying. Now, of Most of the biblical accounts of prophecy are all about the message. We've got the message, but it's really an abbreviated form. Actually, in contrast, in most of the prophetic narratives, most of Jonah is about Jonah. It's about him. His preaching in Nineveh will be very briefly summarized. So the the Holy Spirit is here inviting us. Okay, pay attention to this, this man. I, I, I want to teach you something through the example of Jonah here. The name Jonah, as it happens, means dove. And in Hebrew thought, a dove was a silly and senseless bird. <laughs> it was considered a foolish creature. And uh, we're going to see that really fits Jonah. Jonah. He's a pretty foolish, foolish prophet. Amittai, the name of Jonah's father, means son of my faithfulness. Maybe that gives us a little hope (laughs) for this foolish prophet, a little bit of hope for ourselves when we're pretty foolish. Well, Jonah gets his commission, and of course, what do we expect a prophet to do when they get their commission? He's going to head right do northeast, follow the Fertile Crescent, get in Nineveh, deliver the word, right? I mean, that's what prophets do. Not Jonah. Goes the opposite direction. Doesn't go northeast to Nineveh, it goes southwest down to Joppa. Books passage on a ship going as far as he can go. We're not exactly sure where Tarshish is, but it's somewhere at the western end of the Mediterranean. See, some people even think it's on sort of the southwest coast of that peninsula there. He, 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 in other words, goes as far as he can go away. And that's what's emphasized, really. Not so much where he's going to, but where he's going away from. Did you catch that in the opening scene? Look at it again in verse 3. Verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And just in case we missed it, we're told at the end of that verse. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Think of anybody else who went away from the presence of the Lord. Wanted to get away from God. Go way back. Go back all the way to the beginning. He was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve. Right? They heard the sound. Some translate that voice, noise of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid, himself, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. One of their sons does the same thing. Which one of their sons went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in Nod, east of Eden? Cain, yes. Now, for the covenant people of Israel, covenant people of God, whom he rescued out of Egypt and brought into the Promised Land, the presence of the Lord was especially associated... With a particular structure, with a particular building. What was that? I mean, it, the presence of the Lord is not associated with this particular building, right? I mean, we're gathered here for worship. But under the Old Covenant, his presence was associated with a particular structure our structures first it was temporary then it was permanent what am I looking for the temple the temple first the tabernacle then the temple it it was there that the presence of the lord was especially manifested and so we could see in a sense Jonah's reasoning here he wants to get as far away as possible He does not want to be obedient to the Lord. Well, of course he's not going to get away with it, so we're not surprised then. The Lord hurls I don't like the use of the verb hurls in this narrative. The Lord hurls a wind. They're going to hurl uh, Jonah into the sea. So he causes a great, great uh, storm to arise. The captain and his crew do what most people do in circumstances like this. When things are beyond their control, they pray, right? I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? We, we do everything we can ourselves. We make use of all our resources. We make use of, of the resources of, of other people. That are, and then if all that fails, then we pray. <laughs> what an indictment of us, isn't it? Well, god is, god is pleased even even to answer our tardy prayers, isn't he? Well, they pray. They pray to their gods. As I said before, each locality, even different occupations, had different jobs. There's a patron god of this, the patron god of that. It's like some people think there's a patron saint of this and of that. So they're praying to their gods here. They've pulled them off the shelf so they can get something out of them and what's what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping down in the heart of the ship. Now think about what's going on with Jonah here for a second. Jonah is an Israelite. Israelites know next to nothing about sailing. They're not a seafaring people. The land of Israel does not have natural ports. Uh, save for a few of them. He has to go all the way down to Joppa to find a, a port in use at that day. They, they don't have natural harbors along the coastline there. Herod will build an artificial harbor at Caesarea for that reason. Okay? So the Israelites don't know anything about sailing. It's very possible he's never been on a boat before he gets on this one. So think about it. These seasoned sailors, they're actually called salts (laughs) in Hebrew, by the way. These old salts of the sea are terrified, and this landlubber is sleeping. What does that tell you? He, He, well, we could say he's just an incredibly courageous person, you know. Bad things happen, he's just got... Can courage ever be bad? Hang on to that question. We'll come back to that. Well, he's really seemingly acting out of character. The the Sadhers go on to the next step. We've got to figure out whose problem this is. Whose fault is this? That's where we go next when we face a problem, right? Who can I blame? Whose fault is this? And so they cast lots, and we won't belabor the uh, story a lot here. You, you've, you've heard it already, but uh, God is controlling the, the roll of the dice, just like he controls everyone else, and Jonah is identified, and so they ask him, well, you know, who are you? Where are they are from? They're wanting to know his background so they know what God to try to appease, okay? So tell us who you are. They're terrified when they hear how he identifies as God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who made the sea and the dry land. They're in big trouble now. Okay? They're, they're under the power of the God who made the sea. They're terrified. So they say, well, what can we do? Tell us what to do. He's your God. You know him. Tell us what to do. Is there some sacrifice we can make? Is there some vow we can undertake? Is there some way we can appease his wrath? And Jonah comes up with the most ridiculous answer. Probably from their point of view. Yeah, just throw me into the sea. They seem to have, in some senses, a lot more on the ball than Jonah. They don't want to offer a human sacrifice. They think that that would be a terrible thing to do—offer a human sacrifice. You're saying your God wants a human sacrifice? And so they do their best to avoid it, but they their backs are up against the wall. They've thrown out all the cargo, and so they throw Jonah out. And sure enough, the storm ceases. <laughs> sort of ironic, isn't it? Jonah it passes the test for a prophet under the Old covenant. Because <laughs> you remember the test of a prophet under the Old Covenant was if they prophesied something, it happened. Well, he prophesied, "Throw me into the sea, and I'll see you'll be caught." And, and it came about. He's been vindicated as a true prophet, but he's out there drowning. Well, well, look at the response of the sailors. It's already said that they were, they were afraid with a great fear. Now notice that is directed. They feared the Lord exceedingly. Literally, it says they feared the Lord with a great fear. They now have an object for their fear. And it is the Lord, the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. We could go a long way with that, but, but let's get back to Jonah. Why, why does Jonah, in effect, choose self-sacrifice? And, and now we begin to get the idea this whole trip is a death wish. That's why he's sleeping. Because he did not care if the ship goes down. And if all else fails, throw me into the sea. I want to die. That's what he's saying. What motiva- what's motivating him here? You're probably already ahead of me. What's motivating him is he hates the Ninevites. He hates the Ninevites. He knows, remember, he knows the Lord is a God gracious and merciful. If I go and prophesy this word of judgment... What if they repent? It's the last thing I want. He knows Assyria is the growing power in the region. Israel can sort of hold its own own against their neighboring countries. They've been able to do that in Jonah's time. He's seen them do it. He prophesied that they'd do it. But in Nineveh is going to be a different case. The Assyrians are empire builders. They're really, in one sense, the first great empire. And Jonah's heard of their cruelty. He, he knows their power. It's, it's sort of on the wane right at the present. So Israel's got some breathing room. That's why they've had some success and some economic stability. But he knows, or at least he can guess pretty well, That empire is going to become restless again. And in fact, he's dead right, isn't he? Because remember, the Assyrians are the ones that are going to obliterate Israel. Jonah figures, as long as I can avoid giving that message, there's a hope that God will punish those guys. So I'm going to go as far away I'm willing to die for my people. That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about his reasoning here. One is, he thinks the greatest threat to Israel is that empire. That's our greatest, that's our enemy. Okay? If we could just deal with that enemy... Life would be good. That's his reasoning. Is that in fact true? Is Israel's number one problem? An external enemy? Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. The prophets will say over and over and over again to the Israelites... Your problem is inside you. It's in your kingdom. It's your sin. It's your injustice. It's your oppression of the poor. It's your ungodliness. It's your materialism. Not an external enemy. I can protect you from any external... Don't you remember I delivered you from Egypt? Most powerful nation of the world? When you're a bunch of slaves, your problem is a moral problem, not a political or economic problem or a military problem. It's starting to get a little relevant. Our country's problems are not out there. They're right in our borders. Our country's problem is a moral problem. And I'll let you apply that. I'll let you apply that. Our country's problem is moral. It needs to repent. Her people need to repent. And Jonah misses that. He thinks the problem of his country is that external enemy. It's not. Well that brings us to the uh, second element then of what Jonah's is doing. Because you see how, how he's he's taking his religion and he's making it subservient to his culture. Here that's secularization. Maybe you've heard that term. Secularization, it's taking religion, it's making it a servant of the political, of the economic. That's what he's doing. And that's one of the huge temptations of the American church, making our faith subservient to politics and economics. The goal of human culture is always earthly-centered. And as soon as a church begins to tie into human culture and promote its goals, our focus is on earthly things instead of eternal things. That's Jonah's problem. He has an extremely earthly view. He has no no recognition in what he's doing of the eternal realities of God. He's, he's trying to manipulate God into serving his earthly desires. And God will not have it. We see, of course, in this, something that we see along with secularization, we see is ethnocentricity. My people, they look like me. They have the same background as I do. They're the same, they're the same ethnic group. They're the, they're the same, they're like me. It's no coincidence that with the rise of secularity in our culture has been the rise of tribalism. And our culture is separating into all these groups and they're identified by skin color or by class or by whatever, okay? and our our culture is fragmenting. It's inevitable, because remember, both secularization and this kind of ethnocentricism that we see so often today, they're really forms of self-worship. That's what it amounts to. I identify with a particular ethnic group because they're me, okay? That's my identity. And, and, and so people are turned in on themselves, and that happens not just at the national level, does it? it happens at the individual level too, doesn't it? Sin turns people in on themselves and they start seeking earthly goals. Jonah is not concerned with the kingdom of God. Remember, that was Jesus' message, the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, says it over and over again. Jonah doesn't care about the kingdom of heaven. He cares about the kingdom of right now. The kingdom I'm part of. And I'll die for my kingdom. Well, where's the gospel? <laughs> we need some good news after the bad news, right? Well, it's here. It's here. Have you seen Christ yet here? Wherever you are in the Bible, don't leave it until you say, Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in this first chapter of Jonah? Well, he's the one who gave his life, isn't he? But not for his ethnic group, not for some earthly government or country. In fact, he, he gave his life for those who are utterly unlike him. For sinners strange from him. In rebellion against him, Jesus came to lay down his life for him. Jonah is the anti-hero, but Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one sent by the Father to preach a word. And he went willingly even though he knew he was going to suffering a death. He's the one whom the Father approved. The one whom the Spirit empowered to do that work of salvation. And he suffered not merely physical death. Jonah thinks he's going to but the spiritual death Of suffering the judgment of hell For the sins of his people oh, there's, a, there's a wonderful gospel here We'll just see it and hear it But put yourself into this story too The Lord has sovereignly placed you In this place And in this time He calls you. He speaks to you through his word. You know what he calls you to? He calls you to repentance, doesn't he? He calls you to obedience to his word. He calls you to pursue his kingdom. He calls you to love him above all else. And so what's your role? You're probably not going to be commissioned to God to go to some foreign land and preach judgment against them. Where are you right now? What's the task before you? What is God calling you to right now? Not not what is he calling you to when you grow up. or when you retire, have more time on you or when you've got your act together. <laughs> and he's calling you right now is put you where you are, given you tasks to do for his sake. The work of your hands, the work of your mind. Offer it to God. That's what he wants. Because in serving Him, in loving Him, He is glorified and you are blessed. Isn't it a tragedy that Jonah misses that? He misses the blessing that could have come to him from doing God's Word. Don't miss the blessing that God has for you being His obedient person right where you are. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's so easy for us to get uh, wrapped up in uh, earthly things and what's happening right in front of us and the material. Uh, Give us eyes to see, see bigger things, greater things. Give us eyes to see your kingdom. Give us eyes to see your kingdom in terms of people that we can reach out to. A person who is suffering, who needs our encouragement or help. That opportunity to glorify you just through doing the work that you've set before us. Help us, Lord, to enjoy, find blessing in being your obedient people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.